and welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hello, Andy, and I'm Akil Amar here with Andy Lipka. And of course, we have Jesse Wegman with us today again. Uh, this is a continuation of the discussion we had last time when we talked about the uh, Equal Rights Amendment. And our discussion last time focused on uh, constitutional issues that were raised by the amendment process. And today we're going to talk more about ERA um, and its content and is it uh, already on the books. And we're going to talk some more about the amendment process as well. We'll talk about the 14th Amendment and we've, and various other things that uh, Jesse wants to weigh in on. Um, but in the interim, since we aired part one, um, the ERA has been in the news again, hasn't it, Akil? Absolutely. Um, three Republican senators, um, Rob Portman, um, whose son, Will, by the way, was um, one of my favorite students, Yale College undergrad, lovely young man. Rob Portman from Ohio, Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, and Mitt Romney from Utah, uh, sent a letter to the uh, outgoing archivist of the United States, the person in charge of the National um, Archives, asking uh, him, um, we mentioned him uh, last week, David Ferrario, uh, asking him to promise that he wouldn't on his way out of office. He's, he's retiring. He's announced his, his resignation. Uh, they sent him a letter um, asking for him to commit to not uh, attempting to, to certify ERA's validity on his way out the door. Okay, and do you think it would be appropriate for him to do that? I don't know if he's going to commit to it. Um, uh, their letter was in response to a Democratic congresspersons, um, I think on the House side, um, who had written the archivist demanding that he do his duty and certify the thing because on their view, which I disagree with, um, ERA is already, has already cleared all its hurdles. Various Democratic congresspersons say, said, oh, we're at 38, and they sent this letter to the archivist saying, it's your job to certify it under federal um, uh, statutes. And now three Republican senators saying, it's your job not to certify it, and actually we want you to write us a letter promising that you won't. Um, so, oh, I feel sorry for for my friend, the archivist, and uh, so he's he's caught between the hammer and he, you know he's between the hammer and the anvil, and he's in the news on the uh, on our former president Donald Trump as well. Um, <laughs> somewhat unrelated matter, right? So you know, just when you know he 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 thought he could just gonna get out quietly, <laughs> he gets pulled back in. Um, so you know, he thought maybe this was a you know a, a, a nice. Um, relatively apolitical job, um, not so much. Just to follow up on last week, we talked a little bit about Everscholar and the new program that's being launched in France, June 20th to July 3rd. Uh, we didn't tell our audience where to find more information about it. Um, it's on the Everscholar website, everscholar.org, and the specific page is everscholar.org slash France 2022. And actually, registration is going to open for that program this week. You know, in the past, these programs have filled out very quickly. So I encourage our listeners to check it out and see whether it's something they'd be interested in. By the way, you are interested. <laughs> That's subliminal. All right, well, let's talk about where we are with the ERA right now. So um, I believe 38 states ratified, correct? 
Um, Just nodding yes. Yeah. Initially, initially, thirty-eight states initially ratified. Yes. Right, but um, <laughs> but how many and how many rescissions have there been? Five. Okay, so that takes us to thirty-three states that have ratified without rescissions, right? Correct. So that's not three. So, some of which of occurred after, like Virginia, after um, the accompanying resolution right. um, deadline had passed. But even, 30, even 30, as, as 30, right. 30 states ratified and did not rescind before the deadline. And, and to me, that would be the key number. 30 ratified and didn't rescind within the time period authorized by the accompanying resolution. And that's not and three quarters. Just a remind, again, it matters that the time period was in the resolution rather than in the amendment, because if it's the amendment, the whole thing lapses, whereas if it's in the accompanying resolution, it still has been passed by two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate is still out there, hasn't been pulled back. So all that means is the ratification tally, you know, it ticks back to zero. But if it did, again, I imagine this isn't just like some weird um, hypothetical science fiction thing. I'm imagining 25 states would probably actually, you know, um, ratify a, a, again within a month. Right, but so one quarter, well, hold on. So three and quarters, not, yeah, oh, hold on. Is not preposterous. Three quarters, of, three quarters of 50 is 37 and a half, right? Yeah. So we need 38 states ratified. And so forgetting about the deadlines, you know, if you credit rescissions, we don't have 38 states. Correct. So so that by itself is a is a deal breaker if you right. credit the research. Right. That's why I said there were two independent right. reasons I have. One has to do with the time limit. One has to do with Now, Jesse's piece correctly says, I mean, wow, you got a lot in and good for you. And I was envious that they actually gave you some space because when I write op-eds, they don't give me so much space. But you're telling me actually you had other stuff that they pulled out, so it happened. Oh, like another 2,000 words is, was cut. Okay. But, but, but I, if I, unless I'm misremembering the piece, you say, and, and rightly so, in earlier amendments, um, the rescissions have been ignored. And, that, and now that's a, that's a really important point. And, and if the, the facts of the world were of a certain sort, Oh, that would be very, very difficult for my position. Here's what would be, because remember, I said, good God, man, we've seen it done. The 18th Amendment actually did this with seven years. So if you said, good God, man, we've amended the Constitution by disregarding the rescissions um, and, full, and, and nothing else could be said. And, and without that, the 14th Amendment wouldn't be part of the Constitution or the 15th. I said, oh, that's a big problem for Akhil Amar. Here's why it's not. Because well, hold it, on before you do, before you say that you just skipped over the facts there. Lay out the facts for the audience first about okay. the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments. So the Fourteenth Amendment actually some states ratified and then later purported to rescind before we got to three quarters. Okay, so so t- with the Fifteenth Amendment actually, Amar's claim, even without counting those states that ratified uh, but later purported to rescind, you still had enough. And the only issue at all is possibly, if you, if you don't count the, the states that were sent the amendment would have been um, uh, formally ratified two days after um, where everyone uh, thinks it, it rather. So, so it, it, it would just be a question of, of a two-day difference in when the 14th Amendment actually formally kicked into operation, when it vested. So this is comparable to the Greeley precedent that we talked about, which is this terrible precedent Okay, that that had no effect at the time. Because right. I think that's it, what he's saying, right? Yeah. Is that, that we've never actually tested the meaning of a rescission because it's never mattered, right? 
And that's what I was saying about Dylan versus Gloss too, which is why I called it dicta, because actually it was about the 18th Amendment. It really wasn't about the second becoming the 27th Amendment. They, they bloviated a, a whole bunch of things, and I think they actually didn't need to. Um, they got it mainly right, because remember, I'm a contemporaneous person. I think they, they are channeling the spirit of the Constitution, but I think the best way of cashing it out is because otherwise you're going to have to say courts come up with rules after the fact. Seven years isn't too long. Twelve years is too long. You know, Goldilocks, oh, but ten years is just right or something. Amar avoids all of that awkward line drawing problem. How long is too long? By simply saying, just look at the last action of each state, and a statute, it, you know, is the law until it's repealed. And a ratification continues to be valid until it's pulled back. It's so nice, easy, and clean, and it gets you to contemporaneousness, so Jesse, which is what Dylan said. So, Jesse, uh, one thing that I think you didn't really get into in your piece that much was, um, but I'm interested in your, in your thoughts on this, uh, how do we go forward with this? In other words, if, if we have this situation where we have these rescissions sitting out there, we have these questions about the deadlines and 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 with the ERA I think we should point out that the the deadline is not in the body of the amendment but it's within it's in the what the enacting uh, resolution the accompanying resolution right, right right so so that's another question but that's what um, I've been saying right, well you've been the- you've been drawing yeah. attention to it but in terms yeah. of trying to look at where we are right now these are questions that are before us um, if something were to come up where it mattered whether or not this amendment was on the books or not how would we? Pre- who would decide? How would we proceed? Um, you know, would there? Who would have standing to sue? Who and what? You know, or or would it go before Congress? Or where are well, we with that? I, so the the legal uh, the legal details of that I would leave to Akil. I think he'll answer that much quicker and, I, I, and more I accurately than I would. But I. But here's what I'll say, just to answer your earlier question about other paths forward. I think Akil has suggested one. Uh, there was a whole other section of the piece that also got cut, which dealt with this question, which involved, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, one of the proposals that I heard was uh, to have an effectively a national referendum on the matter to literally put the ERA and whether or not, uh, I guess you could ask it in any number of ways, is, is, the, is the time limit valid or is the ERA part of the Constitution? And you could ask it however you wanted, have a national referendum, perhaps at the midterms, uh, and let the American people vote. And then take that into some consideration. I'm not exactly sure what kind of uh, effect it would have, but it, it, it's a way of introducing contemporaneity in a new in a new in a new manner. Another thing to do would be to split the baby and to say uh, we uh, Congress removes the deadlines. Congress can retroactively remove the deadlines, which I think is another dispute. I know the OLC doesn't agree it can do that, or the OLC under the Trump years didn't think it could do that. Uh, but at the same time, credit the rescissions so that you are in the place that Akil suggested earlier, which is that Congress's uh, two-thirds vote passing the ERA is still in force, but you go back to whatever number you want to say, 33 or even possibly 30, depending on what you consider about the validity of the extension. But let's say 33 for now, and that means you need to get five more states. That would at least introduce that element of contemporaneity again, because those last five states would be a hell of a hard thing to get, uh, other than, or at least two of them, right? Virginia and Illinois and Nevada would theoretically ratify again, although maybe even not now, now with Virginia's, uh, now with the change in the political makeup of power in, uh, in Virginia. Uh, so, so I do think, 
that those would be two ways you could do it. I'm interested in what Akil thinks of them and also in his answer to your other question. And, and so, Akil, before you weigh in on that, let me just respond to this notion about as a citizen uh, about uh, a referendum. So uh, let's take a, a country that doesn't generally have national referendums but decided to have one on an issue, Brexit. How'd that work out? Okay, so, so I, I, I'm not saying it's the no, best thank solution. You. I'm just saying there's ways there's ways to get at the public. Well, and, and we also something. had um, a, a, a referendum on the entrance to uh, Britain into the EU, and there was a, a, a referendum on Scottish independence. The um, I would say the the leading scholar on that on on, on British um, popular um, lawmaking. Uh, is Anupam Chander. He's a, a friend of mine, a very distinguished scholar. Um, uh, he's now at Georgetown. And I believe that was his, uh, maybe even been a student note, which he actually um, wrote under the influence of yours truly. Because um, this sounds very national popular vote, um, sort of interstate compact like, um, and, and Bruce Ackerman. So I recommend that to our, our audience members, Anupam Chander. I, I think it's a student note in the, in the, in the law journal. How an issue could come up? Well, in theory, see, any two farmers haggling over the price of a cow in small claims court can tee up constitutional issues. Farmer A says, you owe me um, uh, uh, $100 because I sold you this cow and you haven't paid. And farmer B says, I did pay you. He said, and farmer A says, no, you gave me these green pieces of paper. You know, um, they had, there were five of them, and each of them had um, Andrew Jackson um, uh, uh, picture on them. But those five green pieces of paper, that's not real money. The guy says, what are you talking about? It says, you know, valid for all debts, public and private, legal tender. He says, no, only gold is real money. Now, that's a constitutional question. And two farmers, you know, today can litigate. Now, I, I know, uh, you know, which one's going to win on, on that, but... But in a lawsuit, someone could say, well, if it's only ERA, I lose, you know, but if it's, I mean, so it's, it's only the 14th Amendment equality idea, which is um, I lose, but if it actually ERA is, in fact, uh, the 14th Amendment plus the 19th Amendment, I lose, but if ERA were part of the Constitution, oh, that's actually women's equality on steroids, so to speak. It's not sort of a skim milk version of women's equality, but um, a, a robust, um, supercharged, energized version, and if so... I win, and I claim ERA is part of the Constitution because I've read Jesse Wegman's piece, and let's forget the actually isn't it question mark. I actually think um, that um, 38 states have said yes, and, 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 and that's enough. And, and a court could actually then uh, – now, it's going to have to decide, does it matter that Ferraro hasn't, Ferraro hasn't said anything or not? Does it matter that the Senate actually didn't formally endorse um, the House because actually of, of the filibuster or something? But um, does it matter that Coleman versus Miller said this is basically a political question and not for us judges to, to decide? Um, they can disregard Coleman versus Miller just like they can disregard Roe versus Wade or you know Dred Scott or Plessy versus Ferguson. So, so issues can come up. Now, here's what I do want to say. Um, on the, the broader question of, of, of going forward. Um, again, I believe that what we really want is a great amendment affirming women's equality, even if, um, to say it again, even though I actually think women's equality is already in the 14th Amendment, it's not just about race, and it's in the 19th Amendment, I believe passionately in ERA, always have. Um, but I, I don't want it to be adopted under a cloud, 
Um, and I don't want to be adopted in ways that people think actually are basically violative of fair dealing, changing things retroactively. This is like backdating documents. It just, it just looks bad. And I also want there to be a great national um, movement and coalition. I would rather start not with 30, but from scratch and, and generate a certain momentum and challenge the people who are opposed to ERA to oppose it on the merits, whereas now they're going to be hiding behind this procedural issue and this one, that the deadline issue and the, and the rescission issue and all the rest. And, and here's what's really sad. The people in Congress are voting on this and they haven't really held a proper hearing because here's my, what I consider a proper hearing, one in which you invite me to testify as an expert witness, okay? Because I've actually written about this, and so has Mike Paulson and other people, you know, truthfully, they're more partisan. I might be wrong, but I promise you I'm not partisan on this issue or others. And yes, if Akhil Amar cited more than anyone under 65 by the United States Supreme Court, and if he's written on this issue, you, Senator Bennett, you, Senator Klobuchar, you know, you, Senator Coons, um, you, Senator Hawley, just to pick four of my students who are says you should actually you don't have to agree with me invite me to tell you what i think so that you actually take this seriously because this is the constitution and you're not doing that just like you know um we talked before with gary hart about how on the filibuster lots of senators actually aren't doing their homework they're dialing for dollars and tweeting snark all the time and this is no way for the senate to operate or the house or to amend the constitution we should do it in a deliberative and actually populist way. And I still, so, and, and, and I pledge every ounce of, of, of my energy to, to support, you know, such a program because I believe passionately in it. You're, I'm arguing against, you see, what I substantively believe when I say we actually have to, to go and, and start almost from scratch. Because um, I, I want and to let me, and, and Akil, let me let me say this. I, I think we're actually pretty aligned on that point. I, for whatever our arguments about time limits or contemporaneity, which I don't even think are really arguments, but whatever our debates over that, I absolutely agree. And this is why I put the quote from David in the piece is that the, the fundamental reality is when enough people act as though an amendment is part of the constitution, it becomes part of the constitution. And there's no question that right now, given our politics, given the situation in the country, there is no way that enough people would act as though the 28th Amendment, the, the Equal Rights Amendment were part of the Constitution. And that is a major problem for democratic legitimacy. And so I agree with you that this needs to be done in a way that that rat, re-ratifies a national, some kind of national consensus uh, around this issue. Now, uh, Andy just mentioned Brexit as an example of the danger of national referenda. I am not here to advocate for uh, unlimited national referenda. I absolutely agree. There's all kinds of issues. Uh, I, I just want to raise the the point that, and because I, I'm sensitive to this, because I did a you know I did the book on the electoral college. But when you look at all the different ways in which the the people's voice, quote unquote, is distorted and squashed through existing structural mechanisms, such as the electoral college, such as gerrymandering in the house. I actually think it would be interesting to hear from the people directly and see how that, how much that differs from letting state legislatures uh, it reflect the voices of people who they have now effectively drawn out of their districts and, and erased from the political conversation. So I'm not saying a national referendum is the be all end all. I am saying 
so much of our quote unquote national debate is a warped debate that does not actually reflect, I think, where people are on any number of issues. And it would be interesting to see, even just for comparative sake, how different that uh, people's answers would be if they were allowed to express those directly. And I think Jesse's idea is quite brilliant, really, Jesse. And, and, you know, so we, we do, we're friends and we do agree more than we disagree. Here's part of the brilliance of this. And it, it's of a piece with the guy who wrote a book on, you know, improvising ways to have direct election of the presidency. Um, because women, it's, okay, they're dead. And I said, but laws passed by dead people still are valid. It's not just that they were dead. It's that they were men. At the founding, no woman actually was um, at Philadelphia. No one was really part of the, or no, or almost no woman was part of the ratification process and, and no, no ratifying convention, for example. And, and except for New Jersey, it's not clear that any woman could vote. And in New Jersey, maybe a few widows were allowed to vote. We don't have a lot to, Andy is, is throwing his arms up in triumph because he's a New Jerseyite. Um, or is it New Jersey? And they sometimes okay. But, yes, but okay. I disown George McClellan right. and many Here's of our uh, oh, okay. notorious. Uh, so <laughs> women didn't vote at the founding. Okay, the Fourteenth Amendment I say is about women's equality. It says first sentence: Everyone born in America is born a, a citizen. That, that is a full and equal citizen. A born a citizen have full and equal civil rights. Born black or white. But also, you know, born Jew or Gentile, born in or out of wedlock, born first or fifth in a family, um, uh, but also born male or female. So that is an ERA for civil equality, but not for voting. For voting, you need a 15th Amendment for blacks, a 19th Amendment for women. But here's the point. Women didn't vote on the 14th Amendment, even though it protected them to some extent. Women everywhere, even the 19th Amendment, didn't vote for the 19th Amendment. That's why you need a 19th Amendment, because they didn't have the vote everywhere. Okay, and um, and even today in state legislatures, women aren't 50 percent, I think, of any state legislature in America, probably today. One really cool. They're not 50 percent of the House. They're not 50 percent of the Senate. Um, They've never been president of the United States. One, they're not they've never been a majority of the Supreme Court. One really cool feature of what Jesse is proposing. Let's imagine it's not binding in any strict sense at all. Um, It's 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 a non-binding expression of national norms. But the really interesting and cool thing here, why it's uniquely, you know, perhaps proper here, is the people voting on this referendum would be um, half women. And, and, that's, and we've never actually had, and Jesse's nodding his head, he's saying, oh, Kiel actually is my friend. He's not just, you know, don't be, we've never, almost nothing in American constitutional history ever has actually involved you know, majority women, not any Supreme Court case ever, not, um, um, you know, any House vote, not any Senate vote, not any constitutional amendment. So, Jesse, truthfully, I hadn't really talked about this very much. Maybe I said it once or twice, but forgotten about it. But it's a cool idea that you just proposed. And and, and just to be clear, it's not it wasn't my idea. I was it came up through my interviews with people. But I'm just I I liked it. It's an interesting one. But but, but it is. And and I I think I would say, strictly speaking, it isn't binding in any way. But it still might be very evidentiary of something very important. Namely, certain contemporaneousness, at least today, you see people really, you know, now a, a formalist would say, oh, Jesse, oh, Akil, do not, you don't believe in federalism. 
Federalism is actually not just about overall national numbers, it's about the distribution of numbers, and you're just disregarding actually that there's a national majority in your favor, but actually not in um, uh, all the, you know, the relevant states. Um, so so that's what, a, and, and, and our response is, we're not saying that, that actually this makes it so under Article 5 automatically, but we are saying, gee, it itself is a kind of ERA. It's actually empowering women equally in this meta way in a conversation about ERA in a way that nothing else would. It's empowering women on the issue of women's empowerment. It's equalizing women on the issue of women's equality. And Jesse, I think when you say it that way, it's really cool. And, and it's, tr- it's acting as if, from a certain point of view, ERA is already part of the Constitution, isn't it? Mm. I, well, I, and it's please yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. After you. Well, I was going to say that you know I think that these are all valid points. Um, I I continue to be very skeptical of of referenda for a variety of reasons, and and one reason in today's world um, is that let's say that we have a referendum and it doesn't reflect uh, or come close to reflect our our where our politics is coming out. That's another delegitimization of our democracy in the minds of, of many, you know, and so forth. Now it may be valid <laughs> that it's, that it's not, you know, legitimate, uh, that's it, but I'm not sure what constructive, uh, end it would accomplish, you know, in, in, in this day and age. And, and also referenda, you know, they, they can be expression of passion rather than, you know, of, of, uh, considered opinion and, and so forth. So it's a lot of problems with it, but and, having said that, yeah. go ERA. And, I'm not saying I'm against <laughs> women's and, rights or anything. And like I, that. I just want to, just to quote one of the women I quote in the piece who echoes what Akil just said is the importance of the fact that it, we've never had a majority of women making decisions about anything in a, at the constitutional level in this country. So you have, um, uh, I quote her as saying, uh, right now, it's still men let's, making let's, decisions let's, let's for the majority her. of the country who are women. Katie Hornung yeah. is her name. She let's is name her. Politi- yes. Sorry, I'm sorry. She's a political organizer in Virginia. She led the effort to ratify the, uh, the ERA in Virginia two years ago, and she has now uh, re- repositioned herself to uh, push for this on a national level. And she's very much uh, in agreement with the idea that you need to get a sort of, a, a, you know, a... a um, a what's the term I'm looking for? Uh, not just a consensus, but a, a critical mass. You need that. You need the energy. You need the political momentum behind it if it's going to succeed. But the other thing she said, and I think this would, I think I, this I, this might help to tr- transition us into a if we're going to talk at all about the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, is she says we just have to have sex treated the same way as race, religion, or country of origin. That seems fair and decent and reasonable. And of course, I think she's referring to what the 14th Amendment has come to encapsulate. And I would love to talk more because, Akil, you um, have have said, at least initially, that you see the 14th Amendment and the 19th as doing uh, effectively the substantive work that an ERA would do. And I I just want to ask you, so I also tried to get into this in the piece. We cut it because it it is really its own conversation. It takes, it deserves more attention than I could give it in in an already very long piece. But, you know, I I had, I was quoting, uh, 
Justice Scalia from about a decade ago, and you may just flatly disagree with him here, or I may have misunderstood what he was saying, but here's the quote that I had from him. He was asked about uh, the 14th Amendment as it pertains to uh, sex equality, and he said, certainly the Constitution does not require discrimination on the basis of sex. The only issue is whether it prohibits it. It doesn't. Nobody ever thought that's what it meant. Nobody ever voted for that. If the current society wants to outlaw discrimination by sex, hey, we have things called legislatures and they enact things called laws. So that was a right, so this I'm is wondering a, this is a wonderful opportunity for me okay. to say Justice Scalia didn't know what the hell he was talking about, <laughs> called bullshit on him seven times. I've actually studied the history of the 14th Amendment in great detail and written articles on books on this. And it's not just that he hasn't written articles and books on this, he hasn't read articles and books on this. Read my student, Nina Morace, her student note in the Yale Law Journal, Sex Discrimination in the 14th Amendment, Lost History. Read Sandra Ryerson's piece in the uh, Duke Women's Law Journal, I think it's volume one or three, I can't remember, right off the top of my head. I give lots of evidence in my book on the Bill of Rights and in um, my uh, uh, book, America's Constitutional Biography, about how many, many women... 400,000 women are actually signing a petition at the time of the 14th Amendment. <laughs> Justice Scalia, you know, described himself as an originalist, and he had didn't earn that label because originalists need to know history, and he knew none. To be fair, he described himself as a faint-hearted originalist. Yes, um, but <laughs> he especially knew none about things that happened after the founding. And it's not just that he didn't, right. again, wasn't a scholar of these things. He didn't even read the relevant literature. And I'm not alone in thinking that Steve Calabresi, who clerked for him, thinks that too, and says that you know to our students because I called Scalia on this. I agreed to write uh, the uh, foreword, a preface to an, uh, a posthumous edition of Scalia's book, A Matter of Interpretation, but, sin- but I agreed on the condition that someone in loco Scalia, so to speak, in his place, respond to me because Scalia was dead and I, I wasn't going to pull punches. I was going to actually tell the audience, the, the reader, what I really thought, which is that he didn't know history and he was wrong about a whole bunch of things. Um, and, 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 and Steve was one of Scalia's favorite law clerks, but he actually will tell you Scalia didn't know the history of the 14th Amendment. Now, I'll just read you just one paragraph from my book um, on, on the Bill of Rights. They knew the words race. The 15th Amendment says race, color, and previous condition of servitude. They didn't use those words in the 14th Amendment because they actually meant um, a, a higher um, level of equality. Um, so, so here's actually, this is page 260 to 261 of my book, The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. Um, and uh, the, the text said, says, uh, all the citizens here um, meant women too, reconstru- as reconstructors were at pains to explain. Indeed, the case of unmarried white women in many ca- ways defined the basic legal category of civil as opposed to political rights. Although these women could not vote, hold office, sit on juries, serve in militias, they could worship, speak, print, assemble, petition, sue, contract, own property, and bring diversity cases in federal court. In short, antebellum single white women enjoyed civil but not political rights, and Reconstruction Republicans made clear that henceforth blacks should enjoy all these basic rights too. They were actually like the, the... the core case, the paradigm case. Now, here's the, 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 the documentation. For clear examples of the white woman being used as the paradigmatic 
civil rights holder C, and then I have 10, you know, uh, one, two, three, four, five, um, um, seven or so uh, page sites. Okay. Um, women agreed that the rights of blacks and women were now linked. Um, in 1866, the 11th National Women's Rights Convention unanimously adopted Susan B. Anthony's resolution that, quote, by the act of emancipation and the Civil Rights Bill, the Negro and women now hold the same civil and political status, alike needing only the ballot. And the same arguments apply equally to both classes, proving partial legislation fatal to all Republican institutions. Now, here's what I go on to say. To be sure... The 14th Amendment divided the women's um, uh, movement, with some women supporting it and others opposing ratification. But the opposition had nothing to do with the inclusive language of Section 1, which doesn't use the word male or anything like that, um, um, uh, which women rightly read as protecting all citizens and persons. Um, indeed, the key language of Section 1 closely tracked the language of a December 1865 essay by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Okay, now the section one says um, everyone's born a citizen and all the citizens are entitled to privileges and immunities of citizenship. And that key language, I say, tracked uh, the language of a December 1865 essay by Elizabeth Cady Stanton calling for an amendment in which, quote, the women as well as the men shall be secured to all the rights, privileges, and immunities of citizens, unquote. This essay, in turn, echoed Stanton's famous 1848 Seneca Falls Declaration, demanding for women, quote, all the rights and privileges which belong to them as citizens of the United States, unquote. Um, and, and then I say, Section 2 put the word male in. That was about voting and that outraged people, but not when it came to civil rights. And that, of course, was mooted by the 19th Amendment, which is all about women's suffrage. And then here, I finally say, for more discussion... See an, an article that I wrote called Women in the Constitution in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, 1995. Nina Morace's note, which I mentioned earlier, Sex Discrimination and the 14th Amendment, Lost History. That's from 1998, the uh, Law Journal. Sandra Ryerson, Race and Gender Discrimination, a Historical Case for Equal Treatment under the 14th Amendment, Volume 1 of the Duke Journal of Gender, Law, and Policy from 1994. So, there's actually a lot of original stuff on this. Scalia didn't know any of it. So to repeat, I did, yeah. <laughs> my own view is 14th Amendment, which is about civil equality, plus 19th Amendment, which is about voting and political equality, already equals ERA, truth be told. Um, the courts already treat sex discrimination as almost like race discrimination. Because, oh, that almost, you know, um, there's a little bit of a fudge there. Yes, and that will be true even after ERA, because even after ERA is adopted, we will probably allow governments to actually segregate bathrooms and, uh, and sports teams and, and showers in, 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 in high, school, um, uh, high schools and, 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 and um, uh, locker rooms um, and, and sports teams by sex. Um, even though we would never allow race segregation um, in these places, we do allow sex segregation on the theory that when it comes to sex, separate actually sometimes can be equal. Even women sometimes prefer separate spaces. Akil, the states needed you to 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 argue against Phyllis Schlafly, who used the 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 yes. press the, the specter of unsegregated bathrooms to help and one of the kill reasons, the amendment in the right, late seventies. And one of the reasons that I want a debate today from the beginning, um, right. uh, going all the way back to zero, is. The issues are slightly different today. I think we should have a national conversation about transgender 
um, issues and and non-binary persons um, um, and, right. and, 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 and 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 transgender people in sports and all the rest and and those were um, not at the core. Um, the, the transgender non-binary issues weren't really at the core of the conversation. The last not time even around. not even close. Well, as I I, I I sort of tipped at that in my piece when I said that you know even today I said that you know the the, the same-sex marriage ship, which which was another of her you know memoirs, yes. uh, uh, obviously sailed even without the ERA. But I, right. I said in 2022 the concept of sex itself is being contested in ways right. even Miss Schlafly's darkest fantasies couldn't have foretold. So yes, it's not just. I mean, the debate is on almost entirely different ground today right. than Which it is was why in I, I, I want to debate from scratch, not starting right. at 30, I, but from the beginning. And, and just to repeat one other thing, Republicans, I'm a Democrat. Republicans have, are brilliant at wedge issues. Wedge issues are things that actually unite their coalition and divide ours. Maybe affirmative action of a certain quotified sort would be one of them, um, or defund the police or something, or critical race theory. Um, this is a wedge issue in reverse, I think every basically, you know, left of center person really believes in ERA, almost every Democrat, and many Republic, many of my Republican friends will as well. So I actually want to drive a wedge between the reasonable Republicans who will ally with us, and I want to isolate actually the people on the other side. I want them to vote no. I want them to vote openly no against women's equality rather than vote no on the rescission issue or the sunset issue, you know, and, and all these technical things. I want them to vote no openly so I can pound them politically, so I can make them pay a political price um, uh, 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 well, on election day, the way Republicans did with yes. CRT in, in, in Virginia to the Democrats. Well, if they were, and if they were here, they would say it isn't just procedural, it is substantive, and, the, and, and it's abortion. You know, I mean, they, you know. And, they, then, we, and then we're going to have to talk about, and I think, right. you know, there should be a national conversation about those things, honestly. And, uh, um, and, uh, and, 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 and that, remember, Andy, that's what I was invited in row, 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 is an honest conversation on the substantive merits of women's equality rather than just hiding behind precedent. Well, yeah. So, and actually, you know, you, you talk about a wedge issue and um, the ERA got out of committee. It was in the House Judiciary Committee for 47 years. It actually got out of the committee because Gerald Ford, when he was the leader in the House of the of the Republican Party, actually uh, moved it out. Uh, so uh, you and I often, Andy, offline talk about um, the importance of our spouses. Jesse referred to you know, his spouse sort of earlier in this. Um, if we're going to mention Gerald Ford, we should probably mention Betty as well, because I, I bet she had, you know, a little something to do with that. It's possible. But at any rate, it was. It, it, well, as we mentioned, Abigail Adams in the piece, yes, <laughs> which correct. Is, to me, well, I, I had I had not known that quote before until I was steered to it. And, by, uh, and, and chapter seven of my uh, uh, book, America's Unwritten Constitution, is actually entitled Remembering the Ladies. Um, and in the new book, Jesse, I don't know if you've gotten up to it yet, but I actually tell the reader what actually was the background of Abigail Adams' letter to John um, in 1776 on Remembering I'm so, the Ladies. I'm so excited to read that. I'm embarrassed that I didn't know of that letter before. It was Walter Dellinger who 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 tipped me off to it and he had just made the he made the remark remember the ladies and then and I went to find the quote and then I saw the whole letter and I was like this is an astonishing letter and I put all of that I put that long passage in thinking there was no way it was going to survive the editing process and thank thanks to my editor he, he left it all in there because it's such a wonderful 
I mean, it's just such a timeless, wonderful quote from Abigail Adams. And since we, I mentioned earlier scholarship, Walter Dellinger is a preeminent scholar and a great lawyer. And way back in the day, he wrote a really important piece in the Harvard Law Review on some of these amendment issues. So many of our best scholars actually have weighed in in various ways on uh, amendment issues. And if we're really serious, Walter Dellinger should be invited to testify, you know, at a congressional hearing on this. And so should Mike Paulson. If, uh, I hope they would invite me as well and folks on the other side. And let's actually um, have a, a really thoughtful debate about amendment substance and procedure. And, and can I add to that list? Because I think this has been a very male heavy conversation as, as you, Akil, were right to point out that the names of the right. women who have been central to this is people like your colleague, Reva Siegel and right. Julie Sook at, at Fordham and, uh, you know, uh, Kathleen Sullivan and Reva wrote this amazing piece called She the People. She's, right. She has done a lot on the 19th Amendment. As of, That's why you heard me invoke Nina Morace and Sandra Ryers right. and some of my students writing about 14th I, Amendment and sex equality. Absolutely. So yeah, may have helpful I, that I didn't mention some of their names as well. I, 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 I came in for some criticism on this piece for not uh, citing uh, female legal scholars. I, I quoted a number of women, but all in a sort of political register. And the, the male, uh, the, the legal scholar I quoted was David. It was male. And that was because he had written this, what I think this, this fascinating Article 5 study. Um, but uh, of course, yes, this, is, this entire movement has been driven by and led by women right. from the start. And, and, so. and it's why I didn't mention in my first round, because I'm not sure I know of an article by a woman on Article 5 as such, as opposed to women's equality as such. The people often who have written about the Article 5 issues um, have been, frankly, overwhelmingly male. Walter Dellinger, Andy Post, And you, and and um, I do want to say, I'll just add, I'll I'll make a tip here for Akil's own Article 5 piece, which is about almost 30 years old, and which was, for me, kind of life-changing, the consent of the governed, which uh, I read several years ago in preparation for my Electoral College book. And all I can say is it uh, it blew my mind open. And I still think about it almost on a daily basis. And it really does tie into this question of the public will and of contemporaneity and of the desires of the people themselves and of their power to change the document that was created in their name. And so, a national popular referendum that at the very least right. might be actually um, informal and, and, and evidentiary, even if not strictly speaking binding. But to, but to anyone who has not read The Consent of the Governed from Akil, which is, I think, 1994, is that right? Yeah. I highly recommend it. It's way the heck out there. And oh, I, it is, but it's so I, it's I, thrilling. I, I've pulled back a little bit since then because it's, it's, it's one of my two kookiest pieces. And well, oh, you're, I, took, I took some hits. You're 30 years on from it, but I just read it a few years ago. So I'm still in the, I'm still in the honeymoon stage with it. So I, I'm like... <laughs> So, Jesse, um, did you w- was there anything else in the section on the Fourteenth Amendment of your article that got pulled that you wanted to uh, to mention here? Um, you know, it was really um, no. I'm 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 so grateful to Akil for articulating that uh, the the sort of anti Scalia uh, position there, and also uh, for uh, for citing his students' work, um, uh, Nina Morais's work on on the, the relationship of the 14th Amendment to women. And, and Sandra Ryerson. And Sandra Ryerson. Yes. Sandra Ryerson. I, um, I, 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 that to me is a, is a really wonderful uh, articulation of it. I don't have too much more to add other than just I'm curious in Akil's take and your take on 
the relationship between uh, constitutional amendments and laws and how, you know, uh, as I do say in the piece, you know, laws are good and laws actually do bar discrimination, but laws, laws can be overturned, they can be unenforced, and, you know, only an, an amendment is forever. Uh, I know that's a, that's a simplistic rendering of the situation. No, as Akil said, even am, amendments themselves may not uh, have the effects we think that they should or could have. But I do wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. The only other thing it may be the only it may be the only result it may be the only path that we have now is is the 14th and 19th amendment as expressed through congressional legislation right well it's not just that they're that they they endure in a way that statutes are evanescent and, and fleeting it's they embody our deepest ideals and aspirations as a people they are symbolic i believe era is mainly symbolic because we already largely have it but that doesn't mean it's less important. It means, if anything, it's more important, precisely because it is a great symbol and affirmation of national uh, of equality. And that's why I want there to be a great national movement now. I don't want to start, actually, with a head start of 30 states. You know, I actually want to show from um, square one the, the consensus. And in that, um, I, I want... 17-year-olds and 16-year-olds um, in states that already did ratify um, way back when to actually be able to, to do it, you know, um, um, and be part of this so that they when, um, later look, can look back and say, oh, I was actually part of that, you know. I, 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 I want them to have a great national crusade about um, substance, yes, but, but symbols are important. You know, Barack Obama as the first African-American president, just the symbolic significance of that in America, in the world, can't be overstated, or Justice O'Connor, um, or um, on the other side of the aisle, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or today, the next Supreme Court justice. That will, in part, you know, be a certain, it will, there will be some symbolic meaning uh, as well, and even if ERA, in effect, is already in the law, for, even if, as I believe, plus or minus 14 plus 19 equals ERA, I still want to do it for the symbolic affirmation of it. So it's so it's 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 very clear in the text, and it represents a real movement. Um, and and I think just trying to do it on the sly when no one was paying attention quite is not the way to do it right. It deserves to be done right. Well, I think that you know the way that you approach the Constitution, one could see why you would care about this. You know because you'll talk you'll talk about things like well, equality is a deep. Uh, theme in the Constitution, or here's another deep theme in the Constitution, and to adopt the ERA in this kind of, you know, backroom, uh, you know, what you might say, you, you say hinky way. Yeah, um, I, did, it, I did use the word hinky. Yeah, and then to say that... Oh, the best word to use, perhaps, but right. it, was, it was just a talk. But And then you say, well, this is an expression of our deep values. No, not a, our deep values that we're getting it through on some kind of procedural you know, trick, maybe wait yes. 200 years and, you know, yes. slip it in, you know, on the one day that we have a majority in this one legislature, you know, that's not a way to express our deep, it won't accomplish what you're hoping for it to accomplish. It might, it might you know, be there, but, but it's not going to accomplish that. So I think that, uh, you know, again, from sort of a political or a, uh, you know, a, a public minded point of view. I, I want to be part important. of the Democratic platform, of National Party platform of 2024, and dare the Republicans to actually not put it in their platform. 
Okay, good luck. I don't, did the Republicans have a platform? They didn't. <laughs> sure. They didn't. I don't think the, they did last no, year. No platform so, in 2020. No, <laughs> no, they had um, no platform. I, yeah, you know, and one other point I want to make is, to me, that, that Abigail Adams quote was so powerful to me, uh, partly because I hadn't known it before, partly because of the the, the sentiments and the, the the wisdom that it expressed. But also, you know, I've been working on. If if you'll permit me to plug a new project, uh, Akil knows about this. But I've been my a new book uh, is based on a, a spinoff of the first Electoral College book is about uh, James Wilson, and it's uh, going to be the popular biography of James Wilson, uh, who is become dear to my heart and I know has been dear to Akil's for f- much longer. But he's one of the founding fathers that nobody knows about, and yet was arguably it was clearly one of the most influential and most important at the convention uh, and whose ideas about popular sovereignty and about the power of regular people to make and change their government are so pertinent to us today. And, and in fact, we're arguably quite ahead of his time. And so telling his story and sort of resurrecting him, he was, he died 10 years after the convention uh, in disgrace and secrecy. And, and he was very quickly written out of, the, uh, the history of the country. Um, it, it's been a really exciting uh, uh, study for me to do just because it really does tie into these debates that we're having today about what does it mean for the people to express their will on a topic? What does it mean for the people to take the reins of their own government? And for me, the, the last paragraph of my piece, and, and, and in particular that last sentence, I, I thought about for a little while because I, I was, I've been thinking about James Wilson and I've been thinking about the ERA and this, so, you know, the, the American people, Uh, those living today and those yet to come are the authors of the Constitution no less than the founders are. It is not their document anymore, if it ever was. It is ours. It's something that I feel is is a really important idea that a lot of people, I think, don't think about or just have rejected uh, without without thought. Um, and, and, I, and I really would love to bring that back into the conversation that this is our document uh, and, and, and that it is ours to be molded and continuously molded uh, in response to a growing and changing society. Well, of course, the Akil's book, you know, The Words That Made Us, is part of a, a, a trilogy whose subtitles are America's Constitutional Conversation, um, and for, then for various time periods. Well, so, and speaking to Akil has, uh, over the last several years, has for me been very illuminating in that regard, both the paper that I talked about a few minutes ago in Article 5, but also just the way of thinking through what it means to write and then amend and interpret a constitution uh, has has influenced deeply the way I think about these things. I think we haven't heard the last of this uh, of these questions. Um, and in fact, I think we could have gone another two hours with the various uh, elements of this. I had, I know, I had another thirty questions or so. So, uh, thank you very much. And uh, Akil, any closing comments on this? Um, uh, Jesse, um, maybe you'll come back um, uh, for an, another go around at some point. Anytime, I would love to. I would love to talk with you in any tell, venue. Tell, uh, tell your friends we're tough but fair. I of course I will, and I want to talk to you about more about James Wilson. And, okay, Jesse, thank bye. you so much. Thanks, Jesse. Well, that was really great. We're so lucky to have Jesse on. Thank you, Akil, for contacting him and for arranging for him to join us. Um, and I think he had a good time. We did two episodes with him, as we did with Neil Katyal, um, as we did with Gary Hart. Um, um, we, we have a lot of great guests coming um, uh, up in, in the new year, and, um, and maybe some of them um, will be uh, um, uh, frequent flyers. Uh, they'll do it more than once, uh, we hope. Because just, you know, uh, message to all of you out there, 
we're nice to our guests, even uh, when we, we disagree, but it's, it's, it's fun. It's playful. It's, it's respectful, even if I can be a little intense at times, but it's all among friends. So I wanted to follow up on, on something that I started to bring up during the podcast uh, earlier. You know, I asked you what, what do we do? How do we resolve the situation? And you told me that, uh, well, you know, two farmers can file a case and then constitutional issues can come up and then the, the courts step in. But in this case, we've gotten to a point earlier with the Coleman case where the courts have said, at least on one aspect of these issues, you know, you know, not, not, our, not our job, you know, that it's a political question to be settled by the political branches. So, you know, if issues came up where somebody said, you know, I'm affected by the ERA and I don't believe that the ERA is actually the law of the land, and so therefore court, please grant me relief. And it goes up to the Supreme Court and they say, well, Coleman versus Miller, this is, uh, this is not our job. And, you know, you're out of luck. Um, that doesn't seem like a satisfactory explanation. Not that we've already said what the answer is, but that we've already said that we're not going to tell you the answer. Um, so what would happen really, you know, I don't think you really addressed that in your, in your answer earlier. What if they continue to maintain well, will they continue to say that, in your opinion? And if they if they don't, you know, if that if they do, then what happens? So um, this uh, gives me a chance to say a little bit more about the 1939 case of Coleman versus Miller, and maybe connect it to some of the things that we discussed um, in our precedent trilogy, um, uh, which was capped off by our uh, row 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 episode. Um, Coleman versus Miller was in 1939. Uh, it involved um, a dispute about whether uh, a proposed amendment to the Constitution that gave Congress the pro- that tried to give Congress power to regulate child labor um, had, in effect, already lapsed because too much time had passed between congressional proposal and the litigation date. And in 1939, the court said, we're not going to decide that. That's a political question basically for Congress to decide. Um, And so as a precedent, it seems to stand for the proposition that a question about whether too much time has elapsed between proposal and ratification by the now the 38th state. Then there were were fewer states in the Union in 1939, pre-Alaska and Hawaii, but the case could be understood to say, well, the question whether too much time has elapsed between proposal, congressional proposal, and definitive last state ratification, that's up to Congress to decide. And you can see that seems pretty similar to the um, ERA issues that we talked about with, with Jesse over the last two episodes. Um, but I'm not sure that Coleman will be followed and should be followed um, in the in, um, if um, uh, ERA came into court. And remember, my view is that mistaken precedents actually um, should be um, tossed overboard as a general proposition. Now, why might Coleman be a mistaken precedent? Because I'm not sure the Constitution really says that that this issue is not for judges to decide and judges generally do decide constitutional issues because the constitution is law um so why did coleman 
say otherwise. So maybe Coleman is right on its facts, but in a way that actually doesn't correspond to what the court actually said, but might be a basis for, if not overruling Coleman, distinguishing it um, in an ERA context. Um, here's the key fact that you need to understand about Coleman versus Miller in 1939, key set of facts. The amendment that they were asked to consider was an amendment slapping the court itself in the face. The court earlier, the bad old court, the Lochner-era court, had basically said Congress doesn't have the power to regulate child labor. Um, and uh, an amendment was proposed saying Congress does have the power to regulate child labor. That's an amendment designed to overrule the court. Um, and the court may have felt awkward in 1939 saying, ah, we decide that too much um, uh, time ha has, has elapsed. So it punted it sort of back to Congress to make that determination. But it said, oh, what are the standards? We can't come up with any rules or something. Well, um, um, I'll come back to that. So it said two things. It basically, it basically said it's for Congress to decide because Congress is mentioned in Article 5. Yeah, but Congress is mentioned in Article 1 also, but, but no one thinks that the question of whether Congress has power to pass the Affordable Care Act, or whether Congress under Article 1, or, or whether Congress has power to enact a, a federal bank um, uh, in, in the 1790s, Alexander Hamilton and, uh, um, and versus James Madison. No one thinks that those so are given to Congress because, um, uh, and the courts can't second-guess Congress on Congress's Article 1 powers. So why is Congress's powers under Article 5 any different? So, so the court said that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And then the court said, oh, there are no, you know, it's a, it's a time issue. Who's to say seven years is, is not too long, 15 years is too long, you know, 11 years is just right, Goldilocks, you know, wh where do we come up with um, these rules? Well, courts draw lines all the time, in fact, in all sorts of situations. So I'm, I'm not sure that, that, that there was anything distinctly non-justiciable, non-court-like about the question of, of, of too much time. So they said, oh, it says Congress. And, and sometimes when it says Congress, the court should actually um, defer. But here's where, where the Constitution says Congress, and it makes Congress a judge-like in impeachment, the Senate actually is a, a court that may be the last word on what counts as a high crime or misdemeanor. Um, another part of the Constitution makes each house the judge of the, that's the word it uses, of the qualifications of its members. So that there really is a debate about whether you're 25 years old or not, your birth certificate, or whether you actually are or are not a citizen, or how long you've actually been resident in the United States, those are formal qualifications for um, membership in the House. For, for the Senate, it's, it's 30 years, for example. But, but there's language in the Constitution that says each House is the judge of qualifications, and each House is the judge of elections. So I see there where you could say, well, the Constitution itself makes someone else a judge. It makes the Senate the judge in impeachment, makes each House the judge of qualifications of its members. So I, I think um, you, you could say, um, there, um, the, the court Constitution itself makes someone a judge, but it doesn't use judicial language generally talking about Congress's legislative power under Article 1 or Congress's amendment powers under Article 5. So I don't think it's purely for Congress, merely because Congress is mentioned in the Constitution. 
I don't think it's, it's somehow not a, a line drawing issue that's beyond the judicial capacity. But here's why Coleman was arguably right on its facts. There's a third set of considerations that go into this thing that we call the political question doctrine. And some of them are about the awkwardness of judges trying to actually shut down constitutional checks on the judiciary itself. Um, So there are actually at least two reasons why if a federal judge is impeached by the House and convicted by the Senate and then comes to court um, and tries to get reinstated saying, you know, I was, I was robbed, um, something that a court should hesitate. One is because the Senate is the judge. Suppose the person says, ah, I was accused of this crime, um, high crime and misdemeanor, and I didn't do it, and technically it's actually not a, a, a proper impeachable offense. Um, and um, that's so why I'm coming to court seeking reinstatement. And the court might say two things um, for treating this as um, a political question that's not going to get into. One, the Senate really was the, the, the judge of law, in fact. And two, it looks very stinky for judges to try to reinstate federal, fe- uh, fellow judges, given that the impeachment process, or at least the impeachment of judges, um, is a check on judges. Um, and that might be different if the impeached um, and removed official was a cabinet officer, let's say, rather than a judge. Okay. Um, now that you understand that, that there's this prudential anxiety in Coleman itself, it wasn't just about a constitutional amendment. Well, the amendments mentioned um, Congress in Article Five, and who's to say how long is too long? It was an amendment designed to repudiate the court, and so the court may have felt awkward saying, "Ah, too much time has elapsed." But if that's what really makes Coleman right on its facts and plausible. That wouldn't apply to all constitutional amendments. That applied to the particular, or even all amendments that had an issue of, of whether too much time has elapsed. That's a concern that would apply um, to amendments designed to limit the court as such. And that's not, that was the um, child labor amendment at issue in 1939 in Coleman versus Miller. It's not the ERA amendment today. So, so this is why I could imagine a court would actually, maybe it wouldn't overrule Coleman, but it would distinguish it. It would actually treat the precedent as a very limited limit to its facts, actually um, treat it as rightly decided, even um, on the basis of a theory that the Coleman court didn't itself expressly articulate, but that actually people at the time understood um, was in the backdrop of of Coleman versus Miller. So, So you don't always have to actually overrule a case, even as you're moving away from it, you, you can, this is a phrase, uh, a loyal phrase, distinguish the case. You can say, oh, it was actually different. And you can actually even distinguish it on a theory that the earlier decision, the precedent setting uh, opinion didn't itself articulate. Um, so why do I think the court might do that? Um, one, because that actually is the most sensible thing. It makes, it makes uh, the most sense of Coleman versus Miller. But also today's court is, um, um, has a lot more confidence in itself. The, the court in 1939 um, was a court that w- was in bad odor in certain ways. It had invalidated all sorts of New Deal enactments. Um, there had been, in 1937, a plan to pack the court because Roosevelt was pushing back on it, Roosevelt began to put new people on the court, and the court was in the middle of transitioning, but it actually hadn't overruled itself the cases that say Congress can't um, uh, regulate child labor. 
over the next couple of years, the court actually would overrule those cases. So Coleman came up in 1939 in a very awkward time for the court when the court had just actually escaped court packing incident, and it was very um, uh, diffident and, and, and ginger. Today's court thinks very well of itself post-Nixon tapes case where it thinks it came in and saved the country and, and pushed uh, Richard Nixon out of power post-Bush versus Gore. This is a court that in, the, in my lifetime, in effect, ousted one uh, a president, in effect, um, Richard Nixon, and crowned another one, George W. Bush. It, it's a court that, that thinks rather well of itself um, and therefore may be less inclined to defer to the political branches. In 1939, oh, the political branches were able to get stuff done because one party you know, overwhelmingly controlled Congress. I think the Democrats at the time had over 75 um, members of the Senate and, um, uh, over th- and, and over 300 members of the House of Representatives. So if you're punting to Congress, Congress is going to be able to decide things. Today, if you try to punt to Congress, I'm not sure Congress can decide whether the sky is blue. So these are reasons why it's possible to imagine that the court today, um, if the issue came to it, you know, might not follow Coleman, but actually might distinguish Coleman. I'm saying this isn't a political question because it actually raises issues different than Coleman versus Miller. Okay, so it's possible then that the court may say that it's not a political question in this context. We distinguish it. And and here's one final reason why. Remember I said, oh, how much time has passed? Do you have to line draw? If the court adopts the Amar Paulson position, uh, Michael Paulson, um, who we talked about earlier uh, uh, today and and last week, um, you don't need a line drawing issue at all. Five years, seven years, 12 years. You, you can just say two things very cleanly. One, Congress itself set a time limit. It hadn't in the child labor amendment, but here Congress itself set a rule in the accompanying resolution. That's a bright line, and we just say that once that time has elapsed, the uh, ratification clock is set to zero. We, we don't have to come up. We don't have to pluck a number out of the air or out of our butts. Congress itself said it, so that's nice, easy. And second, then the uh, a rule that rescissions actually have to be um, uh, treated as weighty, um, as uh, dis- decisive, then again, that's nice and clean. Contemporaneousness is achieved not by our promulgating a number, Dylan versus Gloss, like too much time has lapsed, too much time hasn't lapsed. We just actually look at what each state has done most recently. So we don't have to come with um, um, any any kind of number out of a hat. Right. It's a, it's a little more complicated than that because Congress extended the deadline and then they removed the deadline. And all you have to say right. is Congress doesn't have the power to rewrite history, which it doesn't. Um, so those are nice and clean and easy peasy, just kind of um, um, not um, they, they, they don't look discretionary and um, and made up. The, the way eight years is okay, but 11 years is too long kind of looks a, a, a little awkward. Okay, so we're, so the conclusion there would be that it's possible that the court, and you might even predict that the court uh, may put aside, not, you know, the, Coleman in the sense of distinguishing it from, not saying Coleman was wrong, but that Coleman applied to that law, but it doesn't apply to this for the reasons that you just said, um, or for other reasons. Uh, okay. Then that would answer the question. Then they then they would rule, and that would be that. But then they also it's certainly possible that they could say no. We said it was a political question. We still think it's a political question, and 
that would leave it in the hands of Congress. So then I suppose what might happen, correct me if I'm wrong, is someone might introduce, uh, you know, a resolution saying, um, you know, that here are the rules on, uh, on deadlines or here are the rules on, on rescissions, you know, in, in, in Congress. And then they vote on it. Okay. And that, or, or they might just pass a, Oh, do they, they, they're actually voting on things now. <laughs> well, the house the voted, the house voted on whether or not right. ERA was valid. Right. Um, but then we, we, then we got this thing called the Senate and remember our episodes on yes. the, on the filibuster Correct. You know, and with Gary Hart as well. Right. Although you could see a, a scenario in which some Republicans, even in this Senate might feel that they don't want to be on the other side of ERA. Something like that. Yeah, but the problem is, it's not just whether you're on the side of ERA or not. It's not whether you, you know, are on the side of trying to rewrite history. Mm-hmm. So, so you, unfortunately, you got problems with the Kilimar if you try to, you know, say um, because it, this is, you know, and the word I I, I, I used is hinky. Maybe I should have said sketchy or dodgy. Right. But so it's, then, it's just not how you do things. So then instead of a filibuster, they'll need an Amar buster. Um, okay. But so, but, so, but the audience is now seeing how like. In the world of constitutional law, all sorts of things are connected. We've talked actually about how um, our precedent episodes are kind of relevant here, the primer on precedent and row, 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 how now the filibuster um, issues are, are also relevant. Constitutional law is seamless. It's connected. Now, of course, even with the filibuster, you, you know, it's possible to get 60 votes. But here's the question. Suppose that that uh, they're saying, well, okay, we're going to limit this bill to, to ERA just for now. And, you know, may say it's some sort of precedent, like the Greeley precedent or whatever, but we're going to concern ourselves with, with ERA. And um, so we, we introduce a bill, just like they introduced a bill saying that the 27th Amendment was validly uh, ratified. So they, they pass a bill to that effect, and let's say they get 61 votes. Okay, so it gets through the Senate, it gets through the House, but is that enough? This, you know, the amendment needed two-thirds to pass. Well, so- you see, you, you, you keep asking me to now um, address, you know, all sorts of hypotheticals because it would turn in part on what the court said in your hypothetical mm-hmm. decision repudiating, you know, my view of what it actually should say. So, so if the court says it's a political question to be decided by Congress and then Congress decides – it would be a little awkward for the court to say, oh, well, that's not good enough for us. But uh, I can tell you, and this is relevant, that on the 27th Amendment, it wasn't 61 votes to 39 votes. It was 99 to nothing or 97 to nothing in the Senate and, and 414 to 3 in the House. And, oh, you know, for the good old days when people actually could, could reach consensus on things. Now, I understand, but what I'm getting at here is the question of can Congress make a decision about the method of passing an amendment by less than two-thirds of And I'm vote? saying it already has in the sense that the accompanying resolution was by less than two-thirds, um, and, um, um, but, um, but the question isn't what I think, as you keep reminding me, because you keep hypothesizing the Supreme Court smacking me in the face. So it would depend on what that silly Supreme Court said in that silly opinion, rejecting the Paulson Amar clean approach and, 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 and instead following Coleman versus Miller when it shouldn't be followed. Because presumably it would say something about, if it's punting to Congress, how Congress needs to make the decision. And if it didn't say that, shame on it. But, 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 but remember, all of this is 
you know, hypothetical after hypothetical after hypothetical, and you're picking actually the prongs that, uh, in, in, in this um, decision tree that I'm actually urging the Supreme Court to reject, because in a Mars world, actually, it's not really a political question. The answer is no. You know, what part, I you tell the kids, what part of no did you not understand? No, it's not, um, it, it's, it, 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 it's not ratified because a, too much time has already passed and you can't rewrite history. And um, so the ratification clock gets set to zero. And B, you know, five states rescinded, and that's their most recent statement, and you can't count them as a yes when really they're a no. And that's easy, and we're done. Well, you know, I, it's not that I'm advocating for a position, but rather— I know, you're just trying to make— you're just trying to, you know, <laughs> you know ask really, really great, deep, hard questions. Well, well and, also, and, no, but, but also, I mean— to demonstrate, you're saying, well, you know, the the court might uh, punt because it's it doesn't, uh, you know, it, it it's hinky for the court to be ruling about uh, about Congress's attempt to slap down the court. What I'm saying here is that if it turns out that the court were to punt it to Congress, uh, and here are all these difficulties that Congress has to deal with that the court may have to weigh back in on. As we explore those forks in the tree, those are more reasons for the court to rule rather than to punt it. So that I exactly. think that it's useful for us to explore them from right. that point of when view. You, when you play the chess game out and, and out three moves, actually, these are all reasons why the court should actually follow the Amar Paulson approach. Well, truthfully, the Paulson Amar approach. Sorry, Mike, you, you, you identified this first. Okay. Um, now, you, you, t- you mentioned as one of the uh, reasons that the court might uh, rule in this case, uh, if it came up, is that the court has more confidence in itself. Yes. And you mentioned kind of the quintessential example of that, which was, uh, or, or which may be considered to be Bush versus Gore, where the, the court stuck its nose, perhaps not confidently, but at least aggressively, um, in places where it uh, might have lo- been loath to go. Uh, yes, previously. we didn't belong, yes. Right. And uh, in some ways, that uh, that case is rearing its ugly head um, once again, as we alluded to recently. And I think that this has led to some important developments in Amar land. Um, yes. So, want, so uh, just as some background for our audience, um, like most law professors, Akhil, early in his career, wrote many law review articles, somewhere around 100 major law review articles. Uh, that's considering that one law review article tends to be hundred pages. That's not nothing. Um, think about writing a hundred senior theses, uh, that are somewhat long at that. Um, but at any rate, and much of your reputation, you know, was made there. Um, then you started writing books and now that you've kind of shifted more towards, um, this books in a somewhat more definitive way. Um, and it's been a long time since you've written more than uh, a law a law review article that consisted of quoting a lecture that you might, that you gave or remarks that you gave. Yeah. But now you're actually dipping your toe in again. And what what tell us about that? What caused you to do it? And tell us what what was so important that uh, made this happen? Yeah, but, and before I do, since you got to plug Edward Scholar, I'm going to plug um, books uh, just uh, since I haven't done it in the last uh, thirty seconds. Um, that, uh, yes, I, I have made a transition to books. These books are written for a general audience. The one that I, you know, that I, I, I feel uh, uh, closest to at the moment uh, emotionally is the most recent one. 
the words that made us America's constitutional conversation, 1760 to 1840. I do hope some of our audience uh, members uh, uh, experience that book. Um, uh, you can get it at the library. You can, you can get it on Amazon or a hundred other places. Um, so, um, so I write books now because I can tell bigger stories because things are connected as you're beginning to see. Whereas articles often you're, you're talking about one issue at a time. They're more for a specialized legal audience. Um, but, uh, so after 2000, when I wrote a piece for a thing called the Harvard Law Review, it's a foreword to the Supreme Court issue of the Harvard Law Review. It's a solicited piece. It's, it's kind of, you know, when you're, you're invited to do it, it's like being invited to host the Emmys or the Oscars or, or, or something like that. It's a very great honor. And I thought, okay, uh, I've reached the peak. I, um, I can just keep doing this again and again and again, or I could try to do something else. And so in 2000, I decided I was going to do something else, write books. Uh, amazingly, this piece came out in November of 2000. Um, and that was really my farewell to law reviews in effect. Um, but a month later, the court decided Bush versus Gore. Um, I did write a piece that appeared um, eventually in a law review about Bush versus Gore. It was a lecture that I gave, but it was a lecture that I gave down in Florida, actually, with several of the state Supreme Court justices who had been involved in the case, actually, in the audience, including the, the, uh, the chief justice. Um, of, of the Florida Supreme Court. So, so I have had a couple of pieces that were published in law review since, but they were basically lectures um, that I gave. Um, or I took a chapter from the book and slightly revised uh, from a book and, 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 and gave it to a law journal that, that wanted something, um, uh, that solicited something from me. But now, um, really, for the first time in, in 20 years, yes, I am um, writing a, a law review article. I'm writing it with my um, brother, Vic Amar, and at some point we should have him on the podcast. And it's all about Bush versus Gore for two reasons. Bush versus Gore looking backwards, offering kind of the definitive account of why that was a disgraceful opinion. But but um, the reason it's, it's really important right now is there are movements underway to try to revive Bush versus Gore and if those movements succeed, um, it could easily be the case that the Democrat in 2024 would win the national popular vote overwhelmingly, but once again, a Republican would manage to um, be inaugurated, in part because of um, various theories that we talk about, uh, Vic and I, in this forthcoming law review article um, in uh, a faculty-edited journal called The Supreme Court Review. It's out of the University of Chicago. Um, our lead editor is Will Bode, a very distinguished conservative, one of my former students. He's the person who coined the phrase shadow docket. He's probably, uh, by acclamation, if not the leading rising young uh, constitutional conservative, surely one of the two or three. Um, many would say the a clerk, for a, uh, beloved by John Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, for whom he clerked. He's our lead editor, another of our editors is uh, Justin Driver, uh, my um, uh, fantastic colleague at Yale. Both of them were on the Biden Judicial Commission. Justin actually, earlier in his career, was at the University of Chicago. He's now um, um, at Yale. And it's nice to have faculty um, editors rather than student editors. Student editors are great, um, um, but faculty editors are, are really great because they, they're, they're, they're experts. So Vic and I are publishing this piece, we look back on Bush versus Gore, but what? It, it, but it's very much, very much a forward-looking piece. We'll have to have a, a whole new episode or series going forward. But just in a nutshell, 
here's audience members, what you should um, keep an eye on. Various state legislatures that are Republican-controlled are, I think, going to try, maybe, for 2024 to say, to pass laws that say either, A, we, the legislature, pick the presidential electors ourselves, um, going back to a practice that really um, died out uh, in 1860. So we're not going to put it to a popular vote in Arizona, in Georgia, um, in Wisconsin or North Carolina or Pennsylvania or Michigan. And it's the reason I'm picking um, these the states or Virginia, we're going to pick the electors ourselves. Or version two, we'll let you vote in Arizona, Georgia, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, um, Michigan, and North Carolina. We'll let you vote. But we, the legislature, not the state judiciary, will decide who really won that election. And and they're going to try to do this picking up on a certain theory that was floated by several justices in Bush versus Gore. It's called the independent state legislature theory. And Vic and I in this piece say that's complete garbage for a whole bunch of reasons. And, oh, it matters. And why these states in particular? Because they have red state legislatures, but purplish or bluish presidential electorates. Um, and, and, and why is that so? Well, we had an earlier episode. We talked about gerrymandering and districting and all the rest. So we'll have to, I'll give you the details about why it is that some states tend to have red legislatures, even though they have blue um, electorates, one person, one vote statewide. Akil, I mean, I think we've alluded to gerrymandering here and there, but we have, we have yet to, we keep promising that we're going to do it, and, uh, and we are. Um, okay, but- so my, my apologies. Here's why I thought that, because I've told Andy this, you know, dozens of times. We have many phone conversations, and, um, and audience members, basically in this podcast, you're, you're just getting, you know, the, the Akil and Andy conversation often, you know, week after week. So I've explained it to Andy multiple times. I, I forgot that actually uh, you all weren't involved in that, um, dear audience members, but you will be. We'll, we'll, I'll explain in detail why state after state has a red legislature, but a largely blue electorate. I've had the privilege of reading the manuscript a few times for this forthcoming article. Yes, you're, you're thanked in it very prominently. Well, thank you. Um, but, you know, it, in a way, it reminds me of the, the book, the, the Words That Made Us, because it's, you know, it, it has a, a, a mission. Um, but along the way, there, is, there are so many good ideas and theories that you come across that, you know, that um, are new, um, or at least new expressions of, of older ideas, um, that it's really quite rich, I think, to, to read it that way. That's, that's the way I felt about the words that made us. And actually, uh, in the postscript of the words that made us, you sort of uh, summarize some of the, you know, okay, here's what you just read, and here's what's new in what you just read. And, and uh, I got that same feeling in reading this article. And it's, got, and it's got a lot of great ideas from my co-author. So we're going to have to have him on at some point. Um, Vic Amar, Dean of the University of Illinois College of Law. Yeah, so um, that's uh, that's big news here, and that's that's it's important because there's a case coming up actually um, next month at the Supreme Court where uh, one of the amicus briefs uh, brings in this uh, this theory. So anyway, um, we'll do we'll we'll have future episodes on that. Anyway. Right. Okay. Great. Well, I look forward to that. Well, this is uh, this is a very rich episode today, and. Uh, I want to thank you, Akil, for, for all this, uh, this new stuff. 
And, right back uh, at you. Until next week. Okay. <laughs>